You can stay seated for this reading, but the Word of God tells us this. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Well, all these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and the age to come eternal life. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. So when you are in a public place, what are some of the common questions that you either ask or have been asked? Right, if you're in Walmart, you're at the airport, you're at a museum, whatever it may be. What are some of the common questions? When we were in Mexico, and kind of just anywhere you travel, the staple question that we needed to learn was, there it is, ¿Dónde está el baño? Right, in Tagalog, the Filipino language, nasaan ang baño? Or, of course, for you English people, uh, Americans, right, where is the bathroom? Right, just common questions. Even you walk up to a stranger and you ask them that. What's another one? Well, you know, how much does this thing cost? Uh, excuse me, sir, where did you get that brochure or that map to the, to the area? Uh, do you know how to get to this restaurant? We're new to the area. We're trying to find out where this uh, good restaurant is on TripAdvisor. All right, these are just some basic questions you can even ask a stranger. You need, there's no awkwardness at all involved. Just genuine, honest questions. Now, let's say you were at Monticello, right, touring Mr. Jefferson's home. Some of you haven't even been there, even though you've lived here your whole lives. You know who, you know who I'm talking to, Mr. Dave. Um, but let's say you're there, all right, and let's say just say somebody walks up to you randomly and says, excuse me, uh, can you tell me how to get to heaven? Just cold conversation out of nowhere. How would you respond to that? Or if somebody just asked you, hey, excuse me, uh, you know, I'd like to become a Christian. How do you do that? How do you become a Christian? What would you say to them? How, do you, how would you respond? You can't say, oh, you know, why don't you talk to my pastor? He's right here. I'm not going to be there, all right? You better not have me on speed dial either, right? I'm not going to bail you out there. That's on you and the person and God, okay? What are you going to say? You might be thinking, ah, that's, that, that'll never happen. That's just so out of the ordinary. It, it may never happen, but it might. It might not happen with a stranger, but it even more so might happen with a family member. Or friend, just out of the blue. They know you're Christian. They know you go to church. They know you read the Bible. They know you're into Christianity. And in a situation, they might approach you and say, how do I go to heaven? Well, in this text, in our passage, Jesus is in that very predicament, that situation. Now, if you recall what was happened immediately before, 
And also, just so you're aware, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this passage. And in each of the instances, Matthew, it's Matthew 18, Mark, it's Mark chapter 10, if you want to do some comparison and contrast later on. But in each of those accounts, the three Gospels, the synoptics, the, the account here of the rich young ruler, which it's oftenly referred to as, it happens right after Jesus had this encounter with the newborns, with the infants, with the babies. When Jesus explained to the crowd, to the people, to the parents, to his disciples in particular, I care about children. I care about the weak, the powerless, the helpless, those who can't boast about any moral accolades. The kingdom of God belongs to such people. And then, all the texts collectively say, as Jesus was going on his way, as he was you know, departing from that encounter, it tells us a certain man ran up to Jesus, bowed the knee at Jesus, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I don't know if he, Jesus had ever met this man or not. We're not sure. But nonetheless, it's just one of those out-of-the-blue questions. And it's, it goes straight to the heart of what's most important. Right, how do I inherit eternal life? And for you and I today, right, you, you think about that question, and two, two big thoughts come to my mind initially. You hear that question, and I'll just ask you, even in the secular world or in Christian circles, when's the last time you ever heard anybody genuinely ask that question? And I'm not talking about studying the Bible or you know, preaching it. When have you ever heard anybody just say in verbatim that question? Probably never. I I personally haven't. I I doubt you have. Again, verbatim. So you might be wondering, well, you know, eternal life, yada, yada, yada. This doesn't really apply to me. It's not what I'm thinking about. It's not what I care about. But when you really pick it apart regarding the issue of eternal life, you and I really do have that question inside of us all. Right? The inherent desire packed into that question is in all of us. Because when this man, when this ruler asked Jesus this, He's not necessarily talking about the duration of life, right? the whole everlasting aspect of life. Right? Because for all of us, in one way, shape, or form, how many of you want your current, present life to continue forever? Right? Nobody. Right? The pain, the backache, the, the hardships with your relationships you might be having, the, the not-so-secure financial bank accounts, right? whatever it might be. Nobody wants this current, present life to last forever. So when this man asked, how can I inherit eternal life? He is talking about the duration, but more so, in the Bible, when you hear about eternal life, when Jesus speaks about it, it's more so talking about the quality of life. The full life, the abundant life, as Jesus also used that language. So, you and I may not ask that verbatim, but how many of us do ask, how can I find a fulfilled life? How can I have a full, fruitful, meaningful life? Where, where can I find this true love that my heart longs for? I look to it in people, I look for it in objects and in money and in my career, but I can't fully get it. Where can I find that true love, that joy, that peace that will sustain me? How can I have a full, meaningful, rich, abundant life? Every single human being asks that question at some point or another in their life. The more mature you get, the older you get, the more that you long for it in one way or another. So we all ask that question. A second quick thought regarding that, right? How do I inherit eternal life? You you might be saying, well, we don't ask that question today, so it's not relevant to us. But I simply propose to you, perhaps we should be asking that question. 
And this is why it's important for you and I to read the entirety of God's Word, to, as we, you know, on Sunday morning, as we do expositional preaching, which merely means going it kind of verse by verse, section by section, passage by passage, because when we do that, as opposed to, you know, what am I going to read today? And you just randomly flip the Bible open, and oh, Jeremiah 35, this will be my uh, morning devotion, right? As opposed to doing that, when you encounter the totality of God's Word, God's Word sets the agenda. God's Word prompts the questions. God's Word brings out what's most important, right? Because you and I might be worried most about the little paper cut on our finger, when in reality, what we truly need is the remedy for the cancer that is plaguing our souls. It's the same way we approach God's Word. Lord, I need a little bit of peace for my day today. There's nothing wrong with that. Right? God talks about that. The Word talks about that. But what you and I need is deeper than that. And that's why it's important for us to ask and have the questions answered that are in the Word of God. So this passage is very relevant for us today. And the question is simple, right? What's the main point today? It's, a, it's in a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? There are three Ps that we'll consider to answer that question, to guide us, to help us formulate a good biblical answer. Three Ps. Here they are. Number one, the perfection that's required. Number two, the impossibility to pay. And number three, the promise of the gospel. So number one, the perfection that's required. This is from verses 18 to 22. So the text says, a certain ruler asked, Jesus asked him. Now when it says ruler, you know, stop right there. When it says ruler, what is that talking about? Who is that? Uh, we don't know entirely sure. It might be a Jewish religious leader, or it could simply just be a civil magistrate. We, we don't know, but either way, this is a guy who nonetheless is high up the food chain, high up the social ladder, right? He's wealthy. He's, he's got some status, some some, you know, he, he has a shoulder above everybody else in the community. Very wealthy, very prominent. Asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, what happens immediately? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Jesus, right at the outset, he rebukes and corrects this man. Right? Because as commentators have pointed out, when, when the ruler walks up to Jesus and he asks him this. He's not confessing Jesus' deity. He's not saying, oh, you know, you are God. and You are good as God. No, he's just, this is a good teacher. This is a good guy, good man I've heard. I've I've heard the reports about him. And it's as if the ruler is kind of trying to cozy up to him, trying to warm him up, butter him up, if you will, so that Jesus gives him a good answer, a favorable, charitable reply. Right? If sometimes you, you might do that with, uh, I don't know, professor, doctor, or pastor, whatever. You know, hey, reverend, um, well, you know, just tell me how do you, right? You just kind of set the stage, try to get on their good side initially. What does Jesus do? He doesn't receive that flattery, but rather corrects him regarding his usage of the word good. No one is good except God alone. Jesus here, he's not denying or downplaying his divinity. He's simply speaking to the man on his terms. You think I'm just a teacher? Yes, of course, he's a teacher. But I'm more than that. I'm not just a teacher. And in the Jewish context in the first century, there are only two things that you could accurately say were good. You know what they were. Right? Today we throw around, right, that's a good hot dog, that was a good vacation. There's only two things you could truly say were good. 
Anybody want to take a stab at it? You go back and forth. It's okay. I don't mind. So, number one, God. Right? God is good. Number two, closely related, the Word of God. The Torah, the law is good. You see that clearly in the book of Psalms. So those are the only two things you could say is good. You can't just say a man or a rabbi, a Jewish teacher. You can't say that they are good. Only God and His Word are good. And Jesus is reinforcing this to the man. But it's also, as one commentator pointed out, right, Jesus doesn't affirm His goodness, but implies that His goodness is the goodness of God. The source of all goodness working in Him. As John chapter 5, verse 19 tells us, the Son can do nothing by Himself. He can only do what He sees the Father doing. So for you and I today, just right at the outset, it's important to know that the, the idea, the concept, the very word of good, goodness, it's closely connected to salvation. It's closely correlated to eternal life, to receiving the kingdom, to entering the kingdom of heaven. But then, right, Jesus continues. Right, no one is good except God alone. Now in Matthew chapter, it's actually cha- Matthew chapter 19, I misspoke earlier. But Matthew 19, the parallel passage, in verse 17, right, Jesus says, well, you know, no one is good except God alone. And then he says this, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. And then, right, Luke, he, Luke just omits that one phrase, but it, again, they're all, they're all the same account. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. And then Jesus outlines several of them. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and your mother. And then Mark also includes love your neighbor as yourself. And also do not defraud. Just another variant of um, you know, the, the lying aspect. So Jesus says, if you want to inherit life, if you want to receive eternal life, if you want to enter the kingdom, keep the commandments. And specifically, he points to, you'll, no, you'll notice there's something common, a, a similar theme between these. What is that? It's more so, if, if you've, when we went through the Ten Commandments, if you weren't here, here's a little quick review. The first four commandments are typically, at least in right, our context, they're referred to as the commandments about God. Right? It's, it's vertical. What's your relationship like with God? The, the last six are about how do you deal and interact with other people. And Jesus here is starting with the other people commands. Right? Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Honor your father and your mother. And what's the point? Well, keeping these commands leads to life. If, you're, if you wonder, well, how is that, that possible? How does that work? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 30 gives us a little window into that. Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. Listen to this. This is Moses speaking to, well, God through Moses speaking to all the nation of Israel. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to Him, to keep His commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land there, crossing the Jordan to enter 
and possess. Right? It's a simple concept. We understand this even as adults, as, even as children. Right? The classic analogy of the fireplace. There's a fireplace, there's wood. Sometimes there's gasoline if you want it to be a very good fire. Right? And what do you do? You need to obey the laws regarding that. If you want to have a good marshmallow, a good s'more, you obey the boundaries. You respect the boundaries of the fireplace. Right? You're careful. You don't stack it right, till it's ten, story, ten stories tall. Right? You have a nice modest fire. But if you, that's all if you respect what it's designed to be and to do. But if you go haywire, you just throw fire everywhere, right? you'll burn the entire forest down. You'll burn your house down. It's the same with God. If you walk in my ways, if you follow the truth, if you stay on the straight and narrow path, you will experience life. You will experience joy. You will experience blessing. You will experience that abundant, full, rich, blessed life that you desire in your inner being. We get that. We understand that. And then, you'll notice, how does the ruler respond? Verse 21. Right, all of these I've kept since I was a boy. Now, initially, right, you have to keep in mind that we live on this side. Let's see, this is the right. We live on this side of the New Testament. Particularly, I'm thinking of the Sermon on the Mount. Right? So before Jesus stepped onto the scene, and what happened on the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus clarified the nature of the law. He clarified that the law isn't just about what you do. It's not just about your actions. It's not just about what you say. More so, it's about what's in your heart. It's about your motivations. It's about your thoughts. It's, go, it's about what's in your entire being. Before Jesus brought that clarity, the Jewish context in the first century, they understood obedience and disobedience primarily in terms of action. So, it is in theory possible to keep these commandments, physically speaking. Right? Don't murder. Oh yeah, I've never murdered anybody. Right? Don't commit adultery. Yeah, I've never, I've never st- stolen. Right? And he says, yeah, I've kept all of these commands. And when we were in Mexico, uh, in the sermon that I preached at the, the movie theater, which was a fun experience, kind of cool, but I, I kind of went on this little tangent about uh, you know, the gospel and, and sin and the redemption that God brings to us through Christ. And I, I, I was getting on the, you know, the thing about what is sin? How do you define sin? How do you know that you are a sinner internally? And then I brought up the Ten Commandments, as Jesus did here as Paul does in, in the book of Romans, and it's just throughout the Bible. So I just went through a few of the, you know, the questions. You know, how many of you have ever lied in your entire life? And I said, just raise your hand if you have, right? Just be honest. How many of you have ever lied, right? Most everybody raised their hand. All right, how many of you have ever stolen anything, right? Hands go up. And then, but it was kind of interesting, though. I asked, how many of you have perfectly, always, without fail, honored your parents and everything? And there were a few people who said, yeah, I have. I've perfectly honored my parents. I was shocked at that. And, but, you know, the, the thing is, I wasn't going to, that's not a battle I'm going to fight. I was like, I'm not going to argue on that. I, I, I highly doubt that. But um, what would I do? I went to the next commandment, right? A different commandment. And that's kind of what Jesus does here, right? Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't say, oh, no, 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 you have not. He just says, okay, fair enough. You've kept those. You've kept the ones I've listed. All right. Here's two other ones that I haven't mentioned yet. Implicitly, Jesus does. He mentions the first and the tenth. And this is what goes on in the heart. What's the first commandment? 
you shall have no other gods before me. And then the tenth commandment, you shall not covet. Those two commands can only be judged in the heart. You can't really, I mean, you can kind of covet, right? And, but it's about the heart. And Jesus says, all right, to demonstrate that you have kept the commands, that you have kept the first and the tenth in particular, go sell everything you have. This is in verse 22. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Right, what is he saying? The comfort, the security, the happiness that you might be getting from your money. Get rid of it. Don't look to your money for that source of life and joy and fulfillment. Look to me. Follow me. And Jesus brings in and references the first four commands, the vertical relationship with God. How do you love God? And, And if for you astute Bible students, you'll recall this isn't the first time Jesus has been asked this question. In Luke chapter 10, which we were probably in, I don't know, five years ago when we were going through this. Just for reference for some of you, I've only been here three years now, so we've been in here a while. But in Luke chapter 10, right, this is when an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The same question, different motives, right? He was, he was hateful, wanted to see Jesus fall. But what was Jesus' reply through the back and forth? Love God with all your being. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's the same answer. You want to inherit eternal life? You want to receive that? Love God with all your being. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus here began with love your neighbor as yourself. Now he's saying love God with all your being. Can you do that? Have you done that? Will you do that? And simply, how do you receive eternal life? You must be perfect. right? If you didn't catch the drift of what Jesus is getting at, you must be perfect. Perfect in your obedience of the word of God. Perfect in your delight of God himself. And it's important to note, right, especially in the secular culture we live in, it's not enough to just be a good person, like just to be a good citizen. Right? The world loves championing that. You know, just do unto others, uh, don't judge lest you be judged, love your neighbors yourself. Right? It's all this kind of horizontal talk, which is good, but the world never talks about love God. Follow Jesus. Obey Jesus. Listen to his words. But that's central to what it means to be perfect. Perfectly love God. Perfectly love others. That's prerequisite. How do you all fare with that requirement? Leads us to the second point. It's impossible to pay the price. Right? How much does it cost to inherit eternal life? It costs perfection. Nobody can pay that price. Verses 23 to 26. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Right? The man's great sorrow, as perhaps your translation might say, his great sorrow was tied to his great wealth. Stated slightly differently, right? this man had so much joy in his money, so much security, so much comfort, so much familiarity with his money, that the very thought of it being gone, right, he, he was sad. And that's true for you and I. Whatever you enjoy, you truly enjoy, whether it's a good or bad thing, right? If you, whatever you put your delight in, if it's taken away, you will by definition be sad. I remember one time when I was younger, 
One thing I loved growing up was Nintendo, and I loved particularly the GameCube, if y'all are familiar with that. That was right before the Nintendo Wii came about, but I love the GameCube, love it a lot, playing it. And for some reason, I don't really remember, I do remember, I'm just not going to say, I was rebellious somehow to, you know, I think my dad in particular. And what was the punishment? Right, the spank didn't work anymore, so what's the punishment? Uh, the, the video games were gone for a day, two days, well, I don't remember how long. But I remember I was so angry and bitter at that. I remember being in my room and stomping around. Because like I was upstairs and you know, stomping around so my dad could hear downstairs and just hear how displeased I was with him. All right? It's not, not the exact same. But what you find your joy in, right? this is the point. What you find your joy in, if it's taken away, you will be sad. And so was this man. And you'll notice Jesus isn't telling him to abandon joy, to abandon riches, because Jesus says sell it all. And then guess what? You're going to have treasure in heaven. Your joy is still going to be there. It's going to be richer. It's going to be better. It's going to actually last. And that's the whole entire thing of Jesus. He's not a killjoy. He rather redirects our joy to what truly lasts. That's what he does. But the man wasn't willing, at least initially. He wasn't willing. He didn't want to. He didn't. And he went away sad because he was very wealthy. Right? And then Jesus responds. He he, um, Jesus looked at him, verse 24, and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. What is Jesus doing here? Right, in general, right, broad strokes, Jesus is talking about idols. Right, what is an idol, you might be wondering? It's anything you put above God. It's anything that you love more than God. Anything that you worship higher and more than God. You might be wondering, what is worship? Your mind's attention and heart's affection. It's pretty simple. Your mind's attention and your heart's affection. That's what it means to worship. Anything you put above God is an idol. And anything you put above God will fail you. It will crumble. It will pass away. It will disappoint you, right? If you put it in your spouse, your spouse will disappoint you. If you put it in your kids, your kids will disappoint you. If you put it in your bank account, whatever it might be, everything falls short of what God is. Because God is the only one who can be on the throne. He's the only one who can fully satisfy us. And Jesus is stating in general, idols are bad, but in specificity, money is very dangerous. Something you must be very careful with. How so? How, what, what's so bad about money? Well, as R.C. Sproul just plainly mentions, and you, you all know this, right? So often wealth is accompanied by a certain measure of power. Just stop right there, right? You have money, you can travel. You can buy things. You, you've got some power about you. And the more power you have, power is typically accompanied by a sense of self-sufficiency. Right? When you were a little child and you go to the store, right, you look to your parents to give you that money. Right? Hey, can I buy this you know, candy? I, I, it's just a couple of dollars. Can I, can I buy it? I need some money from you. Right? You look outwardly, you look outside to others to give you what you need. But the more money you have, but if a child has $10 and let's say all they want is just $2 candy, right, they don't need to talk to anybody else. They're self-sufficient. They've got the power. They've got the self-sufficiency. 
And the point is, a simple point, the more money you have, the less likely you are to see your need for God. Now, there's no inherent goodness in being poor, physically speaking, or in being rich. Jesus is just stating the plain reality. Right? Wealth is something that is very, very dangerous if you're not careful and if you don't submit it to me. And then, I think a big question, at least myself and probably y'all have, right? how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Big question. Who qualifies as rich? Right? If you have $10, if you, you know, make 1000 5000 10000 30000 60000 100000 150000 whatever it might be, right? what qualifies as being rich? Is it just if you own something? Well, guess what? The Bible doesn't specify. It's not explicitly clear who is rich. But I, I guarantee you, right, two things. One, I guarantee you, all of you, okay, how, how much, what your income is, you all think, myself included, it's the next bracket that's rich. The next tier that's rich. They're the rich ones. I, 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 you know, I've got some money, but I'm not really rich, right? We all think that. But zoom out compared to the world, and zoom back compared to all people in history, right? American people, U.S. citizens, are some of the wealthiest people who have ever lived on the face of the planet. Just putting it into perspective. And just for you today, right? Assume and act as though you are rich when you read this passage. Assume that this is Jesus piercingly talking to you, to your finances, to your job, to your bank account. Right? Assume that he is. And, what, and then, right, it's hard for them to enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's just an absurd, crazy picture. It's impossible, absolutely impossible. Verse 26, those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? In Matthew and Mark, again, the parallel accounts, the crowd, the people, the disciples, they respond, in astonishment. They were astonished. They were amazed at what Jesus had just said. Right, who can be saved then? I, I don't get it. And you have to understand, why, why was their reaction like that? It's because in part, again, in the first century context, if you were religious, and by that I just simply mean, if you strove to obey the word of God, if you strove to obey the law, if you walked uprightly before people, You were religious, right? You paid your tithes, you went to the temple, all of these different things. If you were a religious person and you were wealthy, that's the telltale sign that God is blessing you. We we even somewhat think that today. right? If you walk in righteousness, the Lord will bless you. If you walk in obedience, the Lord will bless you. But it was even more so back then. So religious, wealthy person. What Jesus is saying is that person, the person who's the best of the best in society, they can't enter the kingdom of God. It's impossible for them to do that. And Jesus is just flipping everything on its table. Right? The, the, the Pharisee, right, right before this passage, the Pharisee, the good, religious, upright guy in society, kingdom of God isn't his. It's the tax collector, the dirty, rotten tax collector. Right? The disciples, the guys who were becoming pastors. They were becoming the good ministers of society. Now, we, we deserve the attention and the affection and the care of Jesus. 
Um, excuse me, it's for the children, for the infants, the newborns. Right? And Jesus is doing it again, just flipping the script. It's not for the rich. It's not for the wealthy. You have to understand the context, right? It's not just about money. It's about the heart. It's always about the heart. It's impossible for the wealthy, very hard for them to enter the kingdom of God. Right? It's as if the Crozet uh, swim team, let's say they had an adult league, and Michael Phelps somehow, some way, auditioned for it. And they say, you know what? You don't make the cut. You're right. That's in the Crozet Gazette. You hear that and you think, ain't nobody has a chance then. No, nobody can make the team. That's similar here. If the rich can't go into heaven, the good people who can be saved. That leads us to the final thing. The promise of the gospel. As I've heard it said before, you may have heard a variant of it, when you acknowledge your inability, you open yourself up to God's ability. And Jesus says it right there, verse 27. What is impossible with man is possible with God. All right, man in and of themselves, in and of himself, cannot be saved, cannot go into heaven based on his status, based on his accolades, keeping the law. It's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And the promise of the gospel is evident in at least two ways here. Firstly, you read this, right? You hear about the perfect standard that's required. Who do you think about? How do you not think about Jesus from this? Right? When Jesus says you must be perfect, you must perfectly obey the law, you must perfectly love God, you must perfectly love other people, how can you not think about the one who did that? Jesus himself. Right? He is the one who perfectly f- and who fulfilled every detail of the law. Perfectly kept it, never broke a single aspect of it. He paid the price of perfection. Right? How do you get to heaven? You must be perfect. The cost is perfection. Jesus paid that cost through his life. That's how that's our Savior that we serve. One time we were uh, had some friends over and they brought some crozet pizza. And so we were just chilling and stuff. And you may have either seen me here on the grounds or crozet about. I like to ride a one-wheel, little electric skateboard. And I've got a friend who likes to do that as well. So um, it was a married couple. So my friend and I were like, all right, since you brought the pizza, it's my treat now. We're good. Let's go to Dairy Queen. And so him and I, we rode the one-wheel to Dairy Queen. And Megan and uh, a friend rode, you know, the car drove there. So we order, I got, uh, I always get a cookies and cream, just Oreo Blizzard. It's the best flavor. And I don't remember what he got, but it was time to pay. And uh, I whip out my card and see if some of y'all might know where this is going. What card is it? It's the American Express card, right? And that's just one of those cards. For some reason, some businesses just don't take that card. And I, I have three that I keep in my wallet. Uh, but I just, I didn't want to grab, bring my whole wallet, you know, because we're skating there and whatnot. So I just grabbed one random card and then I pulled it out and, oh, and I was genuine. I was like, this is a genuine uh, mistake. It was an accident, right? He's like, yeah, uh, sure. How convenient. So he, so he, of course, right, we can't just leave, right? You have to pay. You have to pay. So my friend paid on my behalf, right? Similarly with what Jesus did. 
We want eternal life. We want the riches, the sweetness of eternal life, of being in his presence. Deep down, we cannot pay the price of perfection. Nobody has that in their pockets, but Jesus does. Jesus did, and he paid that cost. But it's not just that. You'll see in the text, it's not just being perfect. There's also, uh, it's fleshed out. What does that mean? What does that look like? Jesus says, sell everything you have, give to the poor, follow me. All right, Jesus is the one who left everything. He left the riches of heaven. He left the presence, the comfort of home in heaven. He left the close relationship with the Father and experienced distance, alienation from the Father on the cross. And then it says, come follow me. Right? But Jesus, he perfectly followed the will of the Father. Look at the Garden of Gethsemane to see that clearly on display. Jesus is the perfect one who lived the perfect life on our behalf. Now here's the gospel truth, right? Connecting it to us today. If you're in kindergarten, preschool, I assume you might do it in preschool, but it's the whole classic gold star thing, right? You do good, you get a gold star. I mentioned that earlier. It's that general principle of life. If you live a good, decent life, you deserve, you probably will get good things, a good inheritance, right? With your parents, if you are kind and want nice to them, when they pass, Lord willing, they'll give you the inheritance. If you're bitter and angry and mean towards them, right, they might give it to a cousin, right? right? We, get, we get this simple concept. It's true, heavenly speaking. If you're perfect, you will receive eternal life. You will receive the full presence of God Almighty. You will receive true love, true joy, true life, abundant, full life. That is what Jesus inherits. That's what he will get because of his perfection. But the gospel is simply this. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. For those of you who trust in Christ, who follow him, who have faith in Jesus, guess what? The Bible says you are now a co-heir with Christ. Everything that he inherits, everything that he receives is now going to be shared with you fully. Romans 2, verse 7, to those who by persistence in doing good, to those who seek glory, seek honor, seek immortality, they will be given eternal life. That perfectly describes Jesus. For those of you who and I, who are in Christ, who follow him, who trust in him by faith, all of that, those riches, the inheritance, is now ours through faith. That's the gospel. But then the second aspect of the gospel, and this is what I I wrap up with. The second aspect of the gospel is this. It's not just about what happens when you die. It's about your life today. This is a peculiar beauty of the gospel and of Christianity. God doesn't just care about what happens when we die. He absolutely does. He also cares about what happens today. He cares about your life today. And we've been going over that the past few weeks, right? The kingdom is coming in the future, but today, if you walk in obedience to his word, you can experience the kingdom today. And we see that even here. Not only is there treasure in heaven, verse 22, that Jesus has secured for us, but look particularly at the very end. Right? Peter said to him, we've left all we had to follow you. Jesus responds, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or wife or brothers, or sisters, or parents, or children for the sake of the kingdom of God 
will fail to receive many times as much in this age. And yes, in the age to come, eternal life. And in Matthew and Mark, as you read them, right, there's a, a little phrase that's left out. It says, for those of you who choose Christ, for those of you who walk in obedience to him, for those of you who live your life for the sake of the kingdom, right, big picture your entire life, but even daily, for those of you who live to honor Christ in this decision you face right in front of you, you will receive 100 times as much as whatever it costs you to choose godliness. Right? So just to be frank, being godly, choosing godliness is expensive. It costs. It's hard. Sometimes we don't want to pay it. Right? When you're at home or you're on a business trip, and you're at the hotel, HBO Max, is something provocative is coming on, nobody will know, right? If you're in a heated discussion with your spouse, there's just something bubbling up inside of you that wants to bring up failures from the past, that wants to accuse and slander, heap insults, right? When you've got some fresh cookies baked, you've had three or four, and you just want one more because you think that will bring you Happiness. When you're tempted to skip a tithe check this week, this month, because the economy is not very stable, right? Whatever it may be, every decision that you face, if you choose life, if you choose Christ, if you choose what is for the sake of the kingdom, what honors God, what is for the gospel, what is in line with the gospel, if you do that, Jesus says, you will have a hundred times as much blessing if you pay that hard cost up front. Right? And this is so important for you and I to remember. Right? Choose the eternal instead of the temporary. Right? When sin offers you a shiny patch of mold that looks alluring on the surface, Right? God offers you a solid gold bar. Right? Choose that. Choose Him. Choose His Word. Choose truth. Choose obedience. Walk in obedience to Him. And you will be rewarded in this life and in the life to come. That is the hope of the Gospel for you and I. So dear church, simple question, how do you inherit eternal life? How do you go to heaven? How do you become a Christian? It's an easy answer. Be perfect. It's also an easy response. That's impossible. It's an easy solution, if you will. Christ is the perfect one on our behalf. Trust in him. Follow him. Look to him. And he will bless you. All the riches of heaven, of eternity, of the kingdom of God, they are yours. If you look to him and if you follow him in faith. It's not about you living a better life, cleaning up your act, getting your act together. It's about trusting in the one who did that for you and then living accordingly in light of all that he's blessed you with. Let's pray. And then we'll close with the doxology. Father, we give you thanks for, for those of us who, who have trusted in you, 
who have at some point in life decisively given up the pursuits of the world, we order, reorient our lives around you, your grace, your truth. And Father, we acknowledge as your people that we are not saved because of our goodness. We are saved entirely because of your perfection on our behalf. But Jesus, we still live in this present world, this broken, fallen world, and we are still faced with daily decisions in which we are faced with a fork in the road. We can either honor you or we can indulge in the flesh. Lord, by your power, by your Holy Spirit, will you please cultivate the desire in us, cultivate the passion in us to choose Christ, to choose the gospel, to choose obedience. And Father, when our flesh is strong, when we long for that immediate payback, the payoff of sinning, the temporary fleeting pleasure of sin, please, please, please open our eyes to see the eternal treasure that you offer us, that is available to us if we orient our lives around your gospel. Help us to see the riches that you promise us. Help us to taste and see and experience the joy of obedience when our hearts are tempted to go astray, please anchor our hearts close to the joy of having close fellowship with you. May your gospel truth now impact our daily lives. May we taste and see that you are good today. And may we be prepared to share this news with the world around us who is longing and grasping in the dark, looking for the eternal hope that we have found in you. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Will you stand and sing the doxology with